everybody out there in podcast land this is your instructor chris with back with another exciting lecture for emt and eh, it's probably not that exciting but today we're going to be talking about anatomy and intro introduction to the body system wow i'm already screwing up well without further ado let's get started as a reminder these lectures are from a powerpoint so i am struggling with trying to get you the information and describing this information to the best of my ability since you don't have the benefit of a slide. I do challenge you to Google some of the things I am talking about so that way you have some type of reference. I'm in the process of putting together a website so hopefully that will be there soon. So here we go. I hope you enjoy. So what is the language of the medical profession? Well, the language is built with prefixes, root words, suffixes, and abbreviations. Now the thing about the medical field, or I should say medical terminology, is that we could have a word and if we put another word in front of it or behind it, it could mean something totally different. So a prime example, tacky. If we put cardia at the end of tacky, we now have tachycardia, which is fast heart rate. Using the same word tacky, if we put pnea at the end of it, now we have tachypnea, which is fast breathing. Another example of this is with the word Brady. Brady means slow. So bradycardia is slow heart rate. Bradynipnea is slow breathing. I do have to apologize for the bradynipnea. Never really been good at pronouncing that word. Now in that first example, you saw how the prefix defined what the definition was going to be. Well, sometimes the suffix will make that determination, as in hypotension and hypertension. The word tension is used for blood pressure. So hypo is low, and we put those two words together, hypotension, we have low blood pressure. On the other hand, if we use the word hyper, and then we add it to tension, hypertension, we now have high blood pressure. We see this example again when we have glycemia. Glycemia has to do with sugar levels. So hypoglycemia would be low sugar and hyperglycemia would be high sugar. Now, as I mentioned in the Tools for Success lecture, these are three by five cards. I would recommend that you write down these prefixes and suffixes as well as the common medical terms that we are using in class so that you can use them for report writing and to understand test questions and eventually, hopefully, to use them in the field. Some other common terms in relation to oxygen is we have hypoxia and anoxia. In this, you could see that we have the hypo once again, and then we have that essentially OXIA that we're going to add to the end of it, giving us low oxygen. On the anoxia part, we essentially are using the A and it's to be without. So the oxia is the oxygen, the A stands for without. So when we put those two words together, we have without oxygen. You will see that A come into play again when we start talking about apnea. Now with pnea, P-E, 
P-N-E-A, I apologize. This has to do with breathing. So when we add that A to the front of it, apnea, this is without breathing. Now we have another condition of breathing called dyspnea, and this would be difficulty breathing. The D-Y-S is the essentially the suffix or the prefix used to describe difficulty. So when we put this in front of P-E-P-N-E-A, dyspnea, now we have difficulty breathing. Hopefully you're not getting frustrated or confused with this part of the lecture. It is much easier when you're able to visualize it on the big screen. This is just an introduction to medical terminology. It is incumbent that you look in back of a medical book, hopefully an EMT book, and look at the medical terms and begin to memorize them. This is going to help you in the field 100%. You will see, though, this lecture will build upon other lectures, especially like when we were talking about difficulty breathing or we're having that respiratory lecture. We'll be talking about dyspnea and apnea, and all of this will be reinforced. So just hang in there. Look up those words, start memorizing them, and you will be okay. So before we jump into body planes, I have a couple more terms. I have acute and atypical. So acute, we have that A again, but this time it's not applying, it's not being applied as a without. Acute is the sudden or unwelcome condition. Atypical is best defined as not normal or not present. These are very common terms that will be used in the field. And two last common terms that I just want to be able to go over are arrhythmia, which is without rhythm. That A stands for without again. And then dysrhythmia. We're seeing that dis again, which is supposed to be difficult, and so we're having a difficult with a rhythm. Dysrhythmias, though there are quite a few out there is that term that we we use to talk about a patient's cardiac condition. A last important component with medical terminology is also abbreviations. We are allowed to abbreviate in the medical field. However, you must use the proper abbreviations. All right, let's get into some cool stuff. Maybe not really, but we're going to talk about body planes. All right, are you ready for some cool stuff? Yeah, actually, it's not so cool. So we're going to be talking about body planes. The three body planes we're going to be talking about are going to be frontal, transverse, and sagittal. So the first one, frontal, is otherwise known as the coronal plane. Now, before I start talking about these planes, let's talk about the anatomical position. The anatomical position is when a patient is standing with their hands down to their side, palms outward. This is the anatomical position. You have probably seen a dozen pictures of this and not even realized there was actually a name to that position. But this is what the medical field will refer to as the anatomical position. Now, when a patient is in this position, the frontal coronal plane is cutting that person in half from the side. So if we were to have two pieces, we would have the front piece of the patient and then the back piece of the patient. So it's cutting the person straight down the middle from the side. Now the transverse axial plane is just cutting someone in half at the waist, separating the upper torso from 
the hip area of the body. This cut would be right at the belly button. The last plane is the sagittal lateral plane where we will then split the body in half giving us a left side and a right side and that's down the midline of the body. These are the three planes that you have to be aware of. On a side note, when we do describe a patient's left and right, remember it's their left and right, not ours. So if a patient has a fracture of the right arm, it's the patient's right arm. You have to remember to not mistake your left and right with their left and right. You may think that this is dumb, but it happens. Trust me. I've seen and heard it. Now we have some directional terms known as superior and inferior. Superior would be above and inferior would be below. For these next directionals, I want you to think of the body as the center being the midline. The reason for that is we will utilize terms such as lateral and medial. Lateral means away from the center. Medial means towards the center or midline. Some additional directional terms are proximal and distal. Proximal is closer to the point of attachment, while distal is further from the point of attachment. So when we use the word attachment, let's think about arms and legs. How is the arm attached to the body? Well, it's attached through the body at the shoulder. To describe this, we can say that the elbow is proximal to the shoulder, whereas the wrist is distal to the shoulder because it is further away from the point of attachment. I always tell people remember it this way. We tell you in EMS to look for distal pulses, especially when we are going to splint limbs. A distal pulse in the arm is the radial pulse. It's referred to as distal because it's further away from the point of attachment. Just like a pedal pulse down on top of your ankle, after you splint a leg, you're going to look for a pedal pulse. So that is a distal pulse. Once again, because it's at the foot, it's at the furthest, furthest point away from attachment of the leg, which is at the hip area. So just remember, distal pulses are that way far away pulse, and that should help you remember the differences between proximal and distal. Some of the terms to talk about are superficial and deep, ventral and dorsal, palmar and plantar, and apex. So let's take superficial and deep. You will refer to wounds as superficial and or deep. A superficial wound is exactly what it sounds like. It's just at the surface. So an abrasion is considered a superficial wound because your outer skin has just been scraped and maybe you have a little blood oozing, but it hasn't penetrated the epidermis or the dermis. So we refer to those injuries as superficial. Now deep Deep is when we have now affected deeper tissues, such as the epidermis, dermis, and subcutaneous tissue. Now, we have terms known as ventral and dorsal. I always tell students to think of the dorsal part first. Everybody knows what a dorsal fin is. Think shark. So if a dorsal fin, where is the dorsal fin of a shark located? On their back. So dorsal would be the back of the human body. 
with that, what would, what's the opposite then? Well, the opposite is ventral, and that would be the anterior or front of the body. Palmar and plantar should be very easy to remember as they refer to the palm and the bottom of the foot. Palmar is spelled P-A-L-M-A-R, so palm, just remember it that way. And plantar, think about the condition that some runners have, such as plantar fasciitis. That's the having the pain to the bottom of their foot. And the last is apex. We have the apex of the lung and the apex of the heart. Apex would refer to the tips of these structures. Now let's talk about some terms related to movement of the body. All right, now let's see if we can confuse you a little bit more. We're going to be talking about terms related to movement of the body. What you need to understand about movement is this, is that if I give you a term such as abduction, know that there is a opposite of that. So let's use that as our example. Abduction, that is spelled A-B-D-U-C-T-I-O-N. This movement is moving away from the body, or simply away from the midline of the body. The opposite of this is adduction, A-D-D-U-C-T-I-O-N. Okay, let's see if we can confuse you a little bit more. Now we're going to be talking about movement of the body. What I want you to understand here is that for every movement, there is an opposite movement. So let me give you an example of that. Let's first talk about abduction. Now that's spelled A-B-D-U-C-T-I-O-N. And the definition of that is the movement of a limb away from the midline of the body. So we're essentially moving away from the midline. Now the opposite of that is adduction, spelled A-D-D-U-C-T-I-O-N. Now we are adding towards the body, so consider the limb coming towards the body, adding something to it. So that's the opposite. Okay, so now let's talk about pronation and supination. Pronation is the rotation of the hand and forearm so that the palm faces backwards or downwards. So kind of think of it like the way Superman flies. He flies with his palms down. So that would be pronation. Well, the opposite of that would be supination. I don't know if I'm spelling that right. As you can see, it's a common word that we use in the medical field. But anyways, this is described as a rotation of the forearm and hand so that the palm faces upward, forward, or upward. So kind of think about as if someone's praying, they have their hands up towards the sky. That would be that movement. Let's talk some body positions now. The first one we're going to talk about is supine. We utilize this position for spinal mobilization and CPR. This is, the best, this is the position that we can best describe as laying flat on your back. We really don't transport patients in this position unless they require CPR or spinal mobilization. Most of our patients, especially our, uh, especially our medical patients, will be transported in a position known as semi-fowlers to fowlers, dependent on their medical emergency. Let's talk about what the opposite of supine would be, and that is prone. We will utilize prone for impaled objects in the back. This is not a common position for us. We do not like this. It could lead to all sorts of problems for the patient. Think of this position as the position that police officers put somebody into when they effect an arrest. For testing purposes, you want to remember 
that we will never place a patient in this position unless we have to, which is really only for an impaled object. So restrained patients patients will never be prone. A third position that we're going to talk about is the shock position. In LA County, we really don't utilize the shock position anymore, but you still need to know it for National Registry. Shock position is supine with the legs raised approximately 12 to 18 inches above the heart. What this does is it provides the blood in the legs to head towards the torso and brain where it's needed. This helps to maintain the blood pressure or raise the blood pressure in those patients who are having or who are in shock. We will be talking more about the mechanics or physiology surrounding shock, and this will help you to understand this position much more in the future. Now, if we have a patient who has a suspected spinal injury, what we're going to do is we're going to put that patient on a backboard, and we're going to elevate the foot of the backboard to put that patient in the shock position. There is a medical term for this position, and it's known as the Trendelenburg position. For those of you that want to research that, it is spelled T-R-E-N-D-E-L-E-N-B-U-R-G. This is considered an old position for shock. It's no longer being used, but I still want you to understand that this is referred to as a Trendelenburg position. The reason why I want you to know this position is that we still use a form of it known as the left lateral Trendelenburg, and it's utilized for OB emergencies. We will definitely discuss that during the OB lecture. So if you think you're getting off lightly, there is an opposite to the Trendelenburg, and it's known as the reverse Trendelenburg. I know, I know, but it is medicine. In the reverse Trendelenburg, we actually raise the level of the head above the feet. This is utilized when we have patients with increased intracranial pressure or herniation of the brainstem. If that's a mouthful to swallow, don't worry. We'll definitely be covering intracranial pressures and those associated emergencies during those appropriate lectures. Just hang in there. Don't worry. We'll get through this. Now we're going to be covering some of the common positions that we put our patients in, especially during transportation. The two common positions are Fowler's and Semi-Fowler's. So I want you to think of Fowler's as sitting upright in a chair. That's the best way to describe this without showing you a picture. We utilize Fowler's for people who have congestive heart failure or shortness of breath. As you will learn in your respiratory lecture, people who are having difficulty breathing will naturally put themselves into, into this position. People who are in extreme difficulty breathing will put themselves actually into a tripod position. So trying to lay somebody flat or into semi-fowlers just won't work. They're going to sit themselves up if they are truly having that extreme shortness of breath. So this is the position we want to put them in during transportation. It allows for maximum expansion of the chest, allowing the person to get in as much oxygen as they possibly can. Now there are those patients who can be put into a semi-fellers who are having shortness of breath, and just this will all depend on if that position is comfortable for them. So don't always think that fellers is strictly shortness of breath or quote-unquote SOB. That's what we call shortness of breath. Semi-fellers to me is that position of comfort. This is the position that is between lying flat on your back and being in that 
upright sitting position. So it's kind of like that halfway I'm relaxing type of position. A lot of patients want to be transported in this position. So we refer to it as the position of comfort. If this is the position your patient wants to be in, put them in this position. Don't fight with your patient over positions. They know what's good for them. One last position I want to talk about is the left lateral position. This is going to be another common position you're going to put your patients in. This position is utilized for when we have those patients who cannot control their own airway, alter level of consciousness without spinal injury. The best way I can describe this position to my listeners is that the patient will be on the left side of their body with their legs bent, keeping them in that position. And of course, once they're on the gurney, we're going to strap them in. These are the positions that EMS professionals should be very familiar with. And once again, if you're in class, we will definitely be going over these more in depth and you'll have illustrations. With that, let's go ahead and take a break and then we're going to jump into another portion of the lecture. All right, I hope everybody made it back from the break and you're still following along. Okay, in this next portion of the lecture, we will be talking about cavities and membranes. We will be specifically talking about the meninges, the thoracic, abdominal, and pelvic cavity, as well as the mediastinum space. So let's jump into this with the meninges, aka cranial cavity. The meninges are made up of three structures known as the dura matter, arachnoid, and pia matter. In our visualization, the dura is the outer layer, the arachnoid is the inner layer, and the pia is that last layer, and together this makes up the meninges which protects the brain. The meninges are not only in the cranial cavity, they're also in the vertebral cavity to protect the spinal column, but once again, they consist of those three primary structures. Okay, so let's move to the thoracic cavity, otherwise known as the pleura. There are two types of pleura. We have parietal pleura and visceral pleura. Let's first talk about parietal pleura. Parietal pleura surrounds the outer portion of the lungs. That's what protects the outside. On the inside of the lungs is the visceral pleura, giving us that protection. The last cavity is the peritoneum, which consists of the abdominal cavity and the pelvic cavity. We'll be returning to these later and discuss the organs that are located in these cavities. Okay, we're going to be shifting gears here. I apologize, but it's just the way the lecture goes. We're going to be talking about body lines now, and I will do my best to describe those body lines. The first body line we're going to be describing is the midline or mid-sternal. I want you to think of me standing directly in front of you with my hands down to my side, palms outward facing you. At this point, think about cutting my body directly in half, making a left side and a right side. This would be the midline. We're cutting my body mid-sternal. This is referred to as the midline. We use the midline quite a bit in describing where injuries are at. The next body line is the midclavicular line. We have a left midclavicular and a right midclavicular. This is located in the middle of the clavicle bone. This is that bone that is connected to the upper portion of your sternum and extends towards your shoulder, protecting that part of the body. So, midclavicular 
is the middle of that and once again we have a left and a right side. Now if we jump to the back and I really don't want to do that but I just want to get the opposite of that we will utilize the scapula. The scapula is directly behind the clavicle bone but on the back and once again it's connected to the shoulder and with that we have mid scapula so we have left mid scapula and right mid scapula. Now because we have injuries on the side of our body we have some axillary lines that we need to discuss. We have mid axillary, anterior and posterior. So now I want you to think about that I'm facing you from either my left side or my right side and I'm in this position. Now you want to cut me in half from this position making a front and making a back. This would be the mid axillary. You're cutting me down that middle portion of my body making a front me and a back me. Now the cool part is the front me would be referred to as anterior and the back me would be referred to as posterior and the line that we did that from is mid axillary. Mid axillary plays a role when we listen to lung sounds. I always teach my students that they should listen to lung sounds not only on the back but mid axillary because that is the area that's closest to the lungs when you are listening to lung sounds. It's one of my preferred areas where I listen to lung sounds of my patients. Now unfortunately, depending on the textbook that you are uh, reading, mid-axillary is sometimes referred to as lateral. Why it is, I don't know. In the EMS world, in the field, we call it mid-axillary, axillary, but for some reason, textbooks and test questions will refer to it as lateral. So you need to remember this during testing purposes that mid-axillary slash axillary is also lateral. Now we already talked about scapula, so now we're going to, if we have a midline from the front, of course we're going to have a midline from the back, and this is called mid-vertebral. Now, once again, picture me looking away from you, but standing with my palms, or standing with my hands down to my side, palms away from you, my back to you. Now you cut my body in half again, left side away from right side. You would do that down the mid-vertebral line. Okay, now we're going to discuss some landmarks. The first landmark we're going to discuss is the sternal notch. I want you to take a couple of fingers and touch the middle of your throat in that soft part. And as you feel down, you're going to hit bone. That's the top of your sternum, otherwise known as the, otherwise known as the sternal notch. Now continue filling down your entire sternum. When it finally hits that soft spot, that is called your epigastrium. You just hit that xiphoid process, which is a piece of bone that's loosely connected to your sternum. If we do improper CPR or have bad hand position, we could possibly break off that xiphoid process, but we'll talk about that later. Now let's move to the back and let's talk about the flanks. The flanks are that area where your kidneys would be at. I kind of like to refer to that this is the area right above where a man would have his love handles. Another landmark, and now this is the front of the body, is the suprapubic region. This is the region just right below the waistline of a man or woman of the pelvic region. Now unfortunately for these 
last landmarks. These are landmarks of the neck, and illustrations are great for this. But what I want you to do right now is I want you to fill your throat and fill all those like little nodules. This is the cricoid area of your neck, those little nodules, and that leads down to the lower part of the trachea. Now know this, right where your ears are at, or your earlobes are at, there's a muscle that travels down from your ear area down into the middle of your chest. This is the mastoid muscle. Right, under, right underneath the mastoid muscle are the carotid arteries. I would suggest that if you're not in the class to go ahead and uh, do a uh, internet search for landmarks of the neck so you can put all these uh, landmarks together and see exactly where they're at. Just know that the mastoid muscle is one of the muscles that we use for chewing and it's a very strong muscle. Oh, I do apologize. This lecture like goes all over the place. So now we're going to be talking about the skeletal system. The skeletal system is what gives us our human form. It's there to protect vital organs. Just so you know, there's 206 bones in the human body. And it's the framework for attachment of muscles. So muscles connect to the skeletal system. There are two parts to our skeletal system. The first is the axial skeleton, spelled A-X-I-A-L, and the second is the appendicular skeleton. So the axial skeleton is the skull, ribs, vertebrae, and sacrum. Just think about it's everything except the arms and the legs. The appendicular skeleton is our appendages, the scapula, remember that backbone, and the pelvis. For both the EMT program as well as your national registry testing, you need to know the major parts of the skeletal system. So you need to know the skull and facial bones, the vertebrae, the thorax, the pelvis, and the extremities. So let's break this up for you. Let's first talk about those skull and facial bones. Let's first discuss the actual top of the skull. The front of your head, that forehead, is known as the frontal bone. Now if we go to the side of your head just above your ears, that is known as the parietal bone. That is spelled P-A-R-I-E-T-A-L, parietal bone. You have a left parietal and a right parietal. In that area of the soft part of your head just adjacent to your ear, this is the temporal bone, otherwise the temples. And the last part of the skull is the base of your skull, which is the occipital bone. These are very important to know because we refer to these landmarks by their names. You will say the patient has an injury to the left parietal, the right parietal, frontal. You definitely are going to document it this way, so it's very important that you memorize these landmarks. Now on facial bones, the first ones that we're going to, we are going to discuss are the ones that make up our jaw. The bones that make up the jaw are the maxillae and the mandible. The maxillae is the upper portion and the mandible is the lower portion. The best way to remember this is max over mandy. Yes, I know how it sounds, but we need to use every trick in the book to just memorize various different structures. So please don't ding me on this and blah, 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 blah. Okay, just go with me th with this. I'm trying to help you. 
The next set of facial bones are the nasal bone. The nasal bone is that area just above the soft part of your nose. And then we have the zygomatic. Now if you feel the bottom portion of your, your eyes in that area of your cheekbones, your cheekbones are actually zygomatic. And these are areas that are commonly fractured after some type of fight or traffic accident. So that's the zygoma. I refer to it as the zygomatic. One of the last ones is the mastoid process. Remember that mastoid muscle I was telling you about? Well, the mastoid muscle pretty much travels all the way up into that portion of the ear, giving us that mastoid process. If you ever had that pain in your jaw while chewing, that is because the mastoid muscle is right there, and that's right where the ears are at. You have a left side and you have a right side. Now let's talk about the vertebrae. You have seven cervical spine, 12 thoracic spine, five lumbar spine, five sacrum spine, and four coccyx. All of these together make up your spinal column. Now how are you gonna remember all this? I got a cool little trick to remember it. I didn't invent it, I only stole it. So think of it this way. You have breakfast at seven, lunch at 12, and dinner at five. So cervical seven, thoracic's 12, and lumbar's five. Now you just need to remember that sacrum's five and coccyx is four. So that's all you have to do to memorize the number of vertebrae in the spinal column and which ones make up which. Now how many ribs do we have? Well, we have 12 pair. 11 are connected and the last one is floating. I would suggest that you take a look at a diagram so you can see how this looks, but the very bottom ones are your free floating ones. The 11 pair are connected to the sternum, and the sternum consists of the manubrium, M-A-N-U-B-R-I-U-M, the body, and the xiphoid process. These, these three structures make up the sternum body. Alright, this next portion is a 3x5 card you're going to need to memorize the organs that are inside of the abdominal cavity. Fortunately for us in medicine, the abdominal cavity is made up into four regions. We have the right upper quadrant, the lower upper quadrant, the right lower quadrant, and the left lower quadrant. God, I hope I said that right because I definitely don't want to uh, retape this. So what I want you to do right now is picture the abdomen. Draw a line down the center of the body, midline. Now I want you to draw a line across the body right above the waist at the belly button level. This will make your four squares, thus your four quadrants. So let's discuss the organs that are in the right upper quadrant. Remember, this is the patient's right upper quadrant. In this, we have the liver, gallbladder, and the large and small intestines. Now on the left, or, or in the left upper quadrant, is the stomach, the spleen, the pancreas, and once again, the large and small intestine. So let's move to the lower quadrants now. In the right lower quadrant, we have the appendix, the large and small intestines, and the, and the female re re reproductive organs. Blah, blah, blah. Well, I'll say that fast three times. 
And last, in the left lower quadrant, we have the large and small intestines, and once again, the female reproductive organs. Though it may seem like a lot, it's really not. Once again, I suggest that you get a diagram, take a look at it, and just memorize those structures that are inside the abdominal cavity. I like to refer to it as a 3x5 card memorization exercise. Now, your pelvis is made up of various structures. You have the coxal bone, C-O-X-A-L, the sacrum, which is that part of the, uh, the vertebrae. You have the obturator forum, O-B-T-U-R-A-T-O-R-F-O-R-A-M-E-N, the symphious pubis, and the coccyx bone. These structures make up your pelvis, and I do apologize for my pronunciation of them. Believe it or not, we are getting to the end of this lecture. So let's talk extremities. We're going to first hit the arm. The bone which makes up the upper arm is referred to as the humerus. The lower arm is the radius and ulna. At this point, your wrist and hand are made up of carpals, metacarpals, and phalanges. As far as your legs... The thigh, a.k.a. upper leg, consists of the femur. Next, we have the patella, which is your knee. And then the lower leg, or leg, is the tibia and fibula. The way I like to remember this is the tibia is the big bone, and the fibula is the small bone. A little way to remember this, or a trick, is that the fibula is always fibbing, that it's bigger because it's smaller. So that way you're able to discern which bone is the big bone and which one is the small bone. At this point, we go down to the ankle and foot, and the ankle and foot are made up of tarsals, metatarsals, and, once again, phalanges. So let's talk joints. What are joints? No, they're not those things you smoke. Joints are where bones connect to other bones. I know, I crack myself up. You should never laugh at your own jokes. So your elbow is a joint, your knee is a joint. These are examples of joints. Okay, now let's talk muscles. We have three types of muscles in our body. We have skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle, and smooth muscle. You have to remember that we have three types of muscle. You will be tested on, a, you will be tested on this not only in class, but in national registry. Skeletal muscle attaches to the bones of the skeleton and forms the major muscle mass of the body. This muscle is also called voluntary muscle because it's under direct voluntary control of the brain. Movement of the body results from skeletal muscle contraction or relaxation. Most muscles of the body operate on the principle of antagonistic parts. The next muscle is cardiac muscle. Cardiac muscle is only found within the heart. This muscle has special properties which include automaticity and excitability. These two elements are what gives the heart muscle the ability to be able to pump and contract with regularity. This mechanical contraction is initiated by an electrical stimulus. Those are pacemakers and we'll definitely cover that during the cardiac portion of your lecture. Now we're going to talk about smooth muscle. We have three 
areas where smooth muscle is located. It's located in your GI tract, bronchioles, and your blood vessels. In the GI tract, this allows movement of food through the GI pathway. In the bronchioles, smooth muscle allows the bronchioles to dilate and constrict. This is the same for your blood vessel tone. It allows the dilation and constriction of your blood vessels. Okay, so it's been about another 20 minutes since our last break. Let's go ahead and take a break and we'll get started on body systems. Okay, well, welcome back. We're going to be talking about body systems. We have two types of body systems. We have priority systems and associated systems. Priority systems are your respiratory, cardiovascular, and nervous system. Associate system associated systems are musculoskeletal, GI, GU, endocrine, lymphatic, and your intergumentary system. Let's first talk about your respiratory system. Let's first talk about the respiratory system. The respiratory system consists of all of those bodily functions, organs, that allow the body to breathe. So the clavicle, ribs, and lung are associated with breathing, as well as your nasal cavity, pharynx, larynx, trachea, which make up your upper respiratory tract, and then the primary bronchus, right lung, and left lung, which make up your lower respiratory tract, and the diaphragm. The alveoli are also part of that, but this is what makes up your respiratory system. It is really important that you memorize these structures as you will have to talk about them or refer to them during testing purposes. As a matter of fact, on one of your tests, we're going to ask you how air enters the lungs. And you have to be able to cite through the upper airway, down through the pharynx, through the larynx, past the trachea, into main bronchus, blah, 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 blah. So make sure that you memorize that process. The cardiovascular system is the next system we are going to talk about, and this is all about circulation, moving oxygenated and deoxygenated blood throughout the body. This is all this system is designed for. It's designed to move the blood back and forth through the body. The heart is the pump, and the great vessels move things back and forth. Next, we're going to talk about the central and peripheral nervous system. The central nervous system consists of the brain and spinal cord. Just memorize that. Brain and spinal cord is your CNS. Your peripheral nervous system is everything else. So remember that big fancy word that I had some difficulty pronouncing, intergumentary system? That's your skin. Why do we have such a big word for the skin system? I think we should just refer to it as the skin system, huh? Well, anyways, that is your epidermis, your dermis, and your subcutaneous tissue. This is what obviously protects the inside of your body. Did you know that the skin is responsible for regulating temperature? It senses changes in cold and heat and responds accordingly. Now remember when we were talking about the respiratory system and I said it's all those things that allow us to breathe? Well, I want you to think of the same thing with the digestive system. This is everything that allows us to digest food. So how do we take in food? Well, the mouth. So the mouth is part of the digestive system, working its way all the way down to the anus where we excrete waste. So it's all those 
parts that make up that system. So we can describe it as the mouth, the salivary glands, the pharynx, the esophagus, the diaphragm, the stomach, the pancreas, liver, gallbladder, large intestine, small intestine, rectum, and anus. Woo! Say that fast three times. Now we've mentioned a lot of organs in this lecture. The one thing that you need to learn are which ones are hollow and which ones are solid. It's important because solid organs bleed and hollow organs spill contents. So what's an example of a solid organ? Well, that would be the liver. Then the stomach would be an example of a hollow organ because contents can spill out. As we conclude this lecture, we're going to end off talking about the reproductive system and the kidneys. I'm sure by now we know what the reproductive system of a female is as well as a male. On the female side we have the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, the uterus, cervix, and vagina. On the male side we have the testicles and penis. Now one of the last organs I want to talk about are the kidneys. Kidneys are responsible for removing waste and water balance. They have their own space in the back. This space is referred to as the retroperitoneal space. So the kidneys aren't just floating around on their own, they have their own space. Just because we mentioned it, we, we will discuss this later on, but we have the endocrine system and your lymphatic system. The endocrine system are those things like the adrenal glands and the pancreas which makes insulin. It's these various things that secrete some chemicals into our body for specific functions. The lymphatic system are lymph nodes, which you've heard probably people having swollen lymph nodes when they have infections and that type of stuff. And they're designed to let the body know that certain things are going on and to fight certain disease processes and so forth. Once again, there are other lectures where we will talk about these two systems separately. Okay, if you ever seen Austin Powers when he says, Basil, what does this all mean? I swear I'm going to actually put that video or at least that voiceover in these lectures because when you think about this is, what does it all mean? Well, what is the relevance of anatomy and physiology? We have to understand the relationship of vital organs. What is the relationship of the heart, lung, and brains? Well, these are the vital organs that keep us alive, allow us to do what we do. They're, they're interdependent. In other words, one organ relies on another organ, as we talked about in these systems. So the lungs don't work on their own. The lungs will only work as long as there's circulation, and circulation comes from the heart and the pipes of the heart. When one organ fails, it leads to the failures of others. And once we have total system failure, our patients die. That's why it's very relevant to understand how one thing affects the next thing, and the next thing affects the next thing. By putting all these together, we can have some preventative measures in helping to treat our patients. This lecture was just a broad overview of anatomy and physiology and an, and an introduction into the body systems you will be getting more in-depth information during individual lectures of the cardiovascular system and the respiratory system, and especially when we start talking about emergencies that deal with those systems. As you can see, my lectures are getting a little bit more animated as I get a little bit more comfortable with the mic. Um, as a last-minute plug, 
any donations will be much appreciated as I will use those donations to keep this podcast and my future website going. I look forward to taping my next lecture, which should be here in the next couple of days. And thank you very much for your support.